This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report, my independent investment newsletter. Uh, Every week I go through a ton of reading and research uh, charts, um, and I select a handful of these things every week to highlight in my free email newsletter that goes out Saturday mornings. Uh, If you're interested in receiving something like this, just go to thefelderreport.com. Right there on the homepage, you can sign up and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Diego Parilla, and I've been trying to get Diego on the podcast for quite some time now because I've just been absolutely enthralled with his thinking. Um, he has been eerily prescient in calling some major turning points in a variety of markets over the past several years. Back in 2014, he published The Energy World is Flat, in which he detailed the coming crash in the price of crude oil. Uh, along with the, the, the dynamics um, that he outlined that would ensure such an outcome. Uh, oil prices crashed 70% after that you know, over the next year and a half, two years. Uh, in August 2017, he published a new book called The Anti-Bubbles, in which he laid out the case for rise in volatility across a number of markets. And just a few months later, the short volatility ETF complex blew up in spectacular fashion. Essentially, overnight, these ETFs went to um, essentially zero uh, in a record run higher in the VIX index. So in this interview, what I wanted to do was really delve into Diego's unique background, how it helps him to see things differently than most people on Wall Street. Um, Diego also shares some of what constitutes his research process and the inspiration behind these investment theses. Uh, Finally, he shares his thoughts on the current state of the global markets and why he believes gold is set to shine in the near future. So please enjoy my conversation with Diego Parilla. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Diego, welcome to the show. It's, I, I'm really excited to finally get this done. You, you're kind enough to give me a second chance after I had some technological issues the first time we tried to do this a few months ago. But actually, the markets have, have done some things in the, in the meantime that make this conversation perhaps even more interesting than the back in May when we tried to do this the first time. But uh, welcome to the show. I'm really glad to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. And I think the problems were partially my end too. So anyway, glad that we can, we can make it again. Well, it's it's pretty amazing that I'm here in Oregon and you're in Spain and we can do this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I want to just start with uh, you have uh, you, one of the things that's most interesting to me is the unique perspective that people bring to the markets. And you have a degree in mining. Um, what was it that first, I guess, drew you uh, in, in that direction? Well, I, my father, really. I, I come from a tradition of mining and, and petroleum engineers. Um, I, I completed my, my uh, bachelor's and master's in, in Madrid. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get the opportunity uh, and, and scholarship to pursue a master's in uh, mineral economics um, at the French Institute of Petroleum in, in Paris. And it was a joint degree with the Colorado School of Mines in um in petroleum economics and management. That uh, interest in economics and, and engineering um, you know, so, so was also very early, uh, also from my father. Um, and, and I think in, in my case, it, you know, that, that master really uh, opened a lot, of, a lot of opportunities. It was, it was a time I, I developed my thesis in something called real options. It was the mid-late 90s. 
the collapsing commodities and um, and a number of crises. And, and that uh, that work caught the eye of of J.P. Morgan. Um, you know, it, they they offered me a, a role in, in in trading. And to be honest, at that point in time, I had uh, no idea what the whole finance world looked like uh, from a market's perspective. I was very much earmarked to go into the engineering and more financing of, of projects than, than the actual markets. But I, I found uh, financial engineering fascinating, and, and this is where I've spent, uh, you know, really most of my career, you know, throughout the, the commodity side, but also very closely linked to to macro and, and foreign exchange and, and others. And you know what? So what do you feel? I mean, because. There's a lot of groupthink in the world of finance, probably in you know a lot of different um, you know industries. But what do you what do you feel that you know your expertise? How, how do you feel that brings kind of a unique perspective to the world of finance? Well, um, I think in terms of you know the the engineering uh, and, and some of my background coming from you know that that world, it's not unique in the sense there's, there's many others. But um, I feel that perhaps my my uniqueness is, is a little bit more, in, you know, I think quite differently. Uh, I think you know many people in finance um, perhaps think more in, in, in numbers and, and uh, ratios and things. I, I think more uh, in, in forces. I think more a little bit in, in terms of equilibriums, uh, disequilibriums, and, and in that sense, I do actually draw a lot of my uh, views and very contrarian views. Uh, you know, in, in, in this kind of dynamic. So I, I do, you know, I think sometimes people get dragged down into the, uh, to the very near picture, into the very short term, into the next tick. Uh, my views are, are pretty much the opposite. They build on a very, very big picture, uh, things, you know, that make sense, that models that, um, you know, are, are mechanical in that sense. Uh, and, and I find that some of these, these relationships, these forces, are very much and, and appreciated uh, by by the markets and by many of their players, and in that sense, you know, I've uh, I've done this before. I mean, I, I have a, a track record of, <laughs> I guess, being identifying big trends, big changes of trends, uh, such as the the energy markets, and uh, this is done, you know, through you know building a you know thesis and and, and understanding. As you say, you know, a number of angles, whether it's the, the, the technical side of, of the engineering, but also understanding very well the dynamics of, of the markets and, and the different regimes in which we operate. So I've seen myself, I guess, going into, uh, you know, the area of bubbles and, and developing the concept of anti-bubble and, and, and trying to find ways in which, you know, uh, dealing with, with being early, you know, being dealing with, you know, you, you might be right or there's a massive opportunity but also managing that that huge risk which is, which is being early which uh you know it's it's, it's potentially as if not a, more painful than 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 uh, than others you know that be, they're being wrong because so in that sense everything comes together um in, in in this way and i think it is very powerful to have a, a different perspective but you know you get uh there are many ways to look at the market and i think you have to understand uh, no matter how fundamental you are, or, or you know, you need to understand technicals and, and positioning and others. So, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of variables that come into into what we uh, what we are. 
but certainly I, I feel that you know, I'm definitely a contrarian thinker. And uh, the ideas that, that we're about to discuss and, and the books and others, I, I think, will, will speak for themselves. Yeah. And when I think of your work, I think of, you know, Charlie Munger has said it, it really helps you to have a variety of mental models, you know, from other disciplines that you can apply to um, to the markets or whatnot. And, um, you know, when I, when I think of your work, I think of, you know, your engineering and, and natural resources and mining. These things have, you know, the, the mental models that are involved with understanding those things um, must have, you know, terrific application to investing in the markets. And, and you mentioned the, the energy um, uh, sector. And, you know, you were, you were just talking about being early, but I, I, I was looking back at your, your call for the oil crash, which was, you weren't just talking about a drop in the oil price. You talked about a real crash. That's exactly what we got. And it looked like your timing was impeccable for that. What was the process that you went through then that helped you see what nobody else was really seeing at that time? Well, I guess, um, you know, this is, uh, I found that, you know, writing, uh, it's it's a very powerful process. You know, you uh, you think you know it until you try to put it in in writing, whether it's a business plan or or a letter to to uh, Santa or whatever it is. You know, the, writing is a very powerful process. But I, for me, it was it's always been a very natural uh, evolution. You have you develop certain views. You you discuss with um, very smart people uh, around the world with different perspectives. I've, I've, been very lucky to, to be um, working and uh, having the opportunity to discuss these ideas. And, and what you realize is that, you know, some of these dynamics, it's almost like you start to develop this, this thesis. And, and, you know, the beauty is that, you know, some of these ideas might sound almost science fiction at, at the time. But, um, you know, this process of, of sparring and, and, and throwing uh, you know, very clever arguments and pros and cons and whatever to to the to the uh, to the thesis. Um, you know, actually, it either kills it or, or reinforces it. And in the case of the in, in, and you talked about connecting uh, the dots and disciplines. I mean, I I read uh, a book called the, the World Is Flat in I guess it was you know 2002. You know, shortly after the the, the bust. Uh, many of you. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll remember the, um, the the original book from Friedman, and that book to me it really it was an eye opener. You know, many many of us were had a sort of a bitter bitter feeling after after the bubble, and and this book to me opened this this completely different perspective to to what had just happened. It was it was really talking about you know a, a technological game changer and how that bubble, which we often associated with, with negatives, actually created a massive investment in, in infrastructure, um, which effectively led to, to overcapacity and, and eventually we have a, a collapse in, in, in prices. But rather than this sour feeling or bitter feeling that many, many have, uh, it, was, it was actually a very positive story. It was a story of uh, a breakthrough technology with huge investment which after the, the, uh, you know, the investments being uh, written off was actually available in huge size almost for free. And, and, and a lot of the, the, the great things that have happened since, you know, would have not been since, since the, the, the 2001 bust, you know, like uh, having 
the, the oceans wired with, with broadband, uh, that, that was really amazing. And that connected the world, Europe and China and India in ways that they, they were not connected before. And it did amazing things. So that book stayed in my mind. Uh, and that, that perspective stayed in my mind. And, you know, many years later when, when Fukushima happened, um, you know, something, something kind of clicked. I mean, we have had uh, a major, we were in the process of seeing a major technological um, breakthrough uh, with, uh, with uh, shale gas and, uh, and shale oil. Uh, that was, you know, uh, the new kid in town, lots of, uh, still today, there's still lots of uh, uh, questions around, you know, the viability in the long term, but it's always the case with new technologies. But we, you know, we have developed the development of, of shale gas, uh, what in my view was a complete game changer with uh, Fukushima, which basically brought, as you may remember, is the, the massive um, you know, quake that we had in, in, in Japan that created this, this nuclear disaster. But as a result of that, we have basically the natural gas. Uh, the, the natural gas is, 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 is a market that, it's historically been very regional, you know, because of natural gas being a gas, it's difficult to store, it's difficult to transport. So if you either have these this gas pipes or, or, or it was difficult. So you could have these very big differences in prices, which are across different regions. And what the LNG, the liquefied natural gas market uh, was doing, it was connecting, you know, gas long-term, but these were very much, you know, uh, mega investments that have, you know, a buyer, a seller, there was no spare capacity. And, but what, what Fukushima did in a way by, by bringing, uh, by taking out all the nuclear or out of Japan uh, for, for a long period of time, it created this huge demand for, for energy in the form of natural gas and coal and others. And that basically sent nat gas prices uh, through the roof in, in, in the LNG market, effectively it's acting as a, as a magnet to, to be able to continue operating without nuclear. And that brought this, this parallelism, that, that flashback almost of, of the book, and how we had this amazing technology, which was effectively making uh, natural gas hugely abundant and, and cheap and, and, uh, and clean and available with, with you know, nat gas prices in the U.S. trading at $2 an MBTU at the time. That's $12 a barrel equivalent. And how... At uh, exactly the same time, we had uh, you know Coca-Cola or Nat Gas, the same the same asset trading ten times over at twenty dollars an MBTU and um, or one hundred twenty dollars a barrel equivalent. Yet it was very obvious to me that that big spike and, and the fact that this would last for a long time would basically result in a major uh, supply response in, in LNG, which would have which have great parallelisms. With or parallels with um, with the dot com, and and we knew that it would take you know at least three years for some of this price response to to result into real supply, but we knew it would come. Or, and, and in that sense, you know that that thesis started a little bit from from the from the fact that you know uh, nat gas, which had historically been uh, just on its own, and, and crude oil had had no competition. How we would see this game changer. Um, process on, on the natural gas side and how we have already seen, you know, Warren Buffett shifting, you know, from diesel into, into natural gas trains and many others. So I felt that, 
you know, this flattening went back to, to Friedman's book. And I wanted to, you know, in honor of the book, I kept the title, The Energy World is Flat, but also the, the structure of the book with the concept of, of flatteners, of forces that were basically uh, reshaping the world. And in this case, it was kind of the globalization of, of energy. And one of them was, was this process of, of shale, the LNG supercycle, and how crude oil would have you know, to compete for, for, for demand, which is something nobody, we hadn't seen before in history, therefore nobody <laughs> would expect. Um, and this process, you know, that, that view, which had obviously huge implications, um, you know, suddenly you start throwing many things at the, at the thesis. And, and the beauty of the process is that, you know, there were very clear winners, there were very clear losers, uh, but, you know, as you as I digged into that and you understood, you know, this that many of these um, beliefs, you know, the belief that OPEC was infallible, that they were in full control. Many of these beliefs were driven by by, by misconceptions. You know, people thought, OK, OPEC is very um, is infallible and is omnipotent. Uh, the, you know, they're so powerful because they they control the supply and, and because they control the supply, they control the price. And that's that's not true. And one of the, amongst many of the very non-consensus views uh, or statements that, that I made, you know, was that, you know, OPEC success wasn't really a supply side story. That was a necessary but not sufficient condition. The real reason why OPEC had been so successful is it wasn't an oligopoly of supply. It was a monopoly of demand. It was the fact that transportation fuels for, for the longest time had had zero competition. It was all gasoline and diesel and fuel oil, it was all oil derivatives. So the fact that we had a, a, new, a new player, a new kid in town in the form of nat gas, that we had it in huge size and, and you know, environmentally friendly and, and very affordable at the end of the day, uh, along, alongside the technological developments, you know, pushed my view uh, that you know, the, the last barrel of oil won't be worth millions, it'll be worth zero. And, and that sentence, which today sounds pretty obvious to most people. Uh, it was really shocking people <laughs> who we had at that point in time, peak oil theory uh, and, and other misconceptions. So all these things go together. You know, I guess you start with, with the uh, thesis uh, and, and that call, you know, it was the timing was impossible to predict. I mean, I, I it took probably about nine, nine to 12 months, you know, to write the book and research and everything. And, and those ideas have been, developing for a while all the way from you know 2011 plus so by the time you publish the the book and, and my, my thesis was my my level of conviction had was much much higher than than uh than before i started writing the book you know we threw okay how do renewables play into this you realized you know a country like saudi arabia investing 120 billion in solar which effectively was a flattener because you you freed up a huge amount of uh of oil that was being used for power generation, which doesn't make any sense when you're in the middle of, of the desert and you have arguably more, even more sun than oil. Uh, so in that sense, all, all, these, these, all these things that uh, made, made, you know, gave me a very uh, high conviction, timing was, was, uh, was uh, obviously difficult or impossible to predict, but you knew it was a matter of when, not if. And, and I think the, the parallels, you know, in that book I had... Uh, the two main parallels that I use, one is historical parallels. That's lessons learned from the same market, just different points in time. And we, we can learn a lot about all the markets 
but in, in this case, we, need, we could learn a lot about OPEC's failures in the, in the 70s and, and, and miscalculations. So we, we could see that they we know that they were not infallible and, and omnipotent, quite the contrary. Uh, once things turn around, they could turn around uh, and, and go the other extreme. But also, as you pointed earlier, the, the lessons learned and the interconnections with, with other industries. And this is something that I've continued to do and where, where I have a lot of interest. And in, in the, my first book, I draw the parallels between the dot-com bubble and, and what I was foreseeing as the, as the energy bubble. And, and through that process, I actually coined concepts like the energy broadband. You know, uh, it was very difficult for the average person to understand all these technical issues in energy. So I was using the lessons learned during the dot-com and I was making a one-for-one comparison between, okay, natural gas is internet broadband. You know, the telecoms are the oil majors. Uh, and, 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 and you could see, you know, it was a very powerful process because when you actually test your, your thesis to, uh, against those historical events and in other industries, it's, it's amazing, but you actually start to ask yourself questions like, okay, so who is Yahoo? Who is going to be Google? And, 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 you know, people ask you exactly the right question on things that haven't happened in a, in a very powerful way. So I find this process fascinating, very powerful, and, and it's what I, uh, something, you know, that I've, I've kept and, and that uh, actually led to, to the contrarian ideas of, of my second book and, and a contrarian concepts that I, I developed, which are, uh, you know, as, as, as we've said, uh, starting to play out, and I think are, you know, also very powerful. Um, you know, yeah, I, I want to get, get I want to get to the second book because there's some fantastic stuff to talk about there. But um, I'm I'm really curious. I mean, it's clear that you have a, a deep understanding of these markets. But you also pair that with, uh, you know, also uh, you know, you pay close attention to the macro trends and, and developments. Now, I, I guess. My question is, what do you use? What are your what are your sources? Um, what, what types of techniques do you use? You know, I mean, what do you what do you read on a daily basis? Um, you know, I guess digging just more granular into into the processes. Is it more like books and long term stuff? Do you read periodicals? Is it a combination of both? Do you use technical analysis? I mean, what are some of the actual you know tactics and techniques? Well, the process has been has been evolving. I, I would say that my my initial training uh, as a derivatives trader and macro uh, with effects and commodities is is really is really been about uh, you know probabilities and understanding you know trying to translate what the forward curves are telling you, what uh, you know the volatility, what the you know there's the, the, the surface, the term structure. Uh, the correlations. There's there's really a lot of stuff that that the markets will will tell you uh, if if you if you look into it and you try to explain you know the dynamics and 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 and, and, and this becomes more obvious when you have regime changes, which in, in the world of commodities where we flip from uh, backwardation to contango with with super contango super backwardations extremes, you know all these different forces is something that you get trained to see in a way that perhaps in, in, you wouldn't in other markets. So I, I would say that I play, I pay very, very close attention to, to, uh, to that by, by training. So I'll be able to, you know, develop views, uh, across volatility and, and, and carries and, and relative value, um, 
and 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 that takes you to to cross asset. You start to uh, then look at you know what conflicting messages do uh, you know let's say oil versus uh, oil companies or gold versus miners or different precious metals or, or different currencies. Uh, and, and it's fascinating to see that sometimes, you know, the bond and the equity of, of the same asset will, will tell you a different story, you know, whether it's uh, on the surface or whether it's looking into the risk premium embedded into the volatility or different things. So if you, if you can actually translate and understand these dynamics, you start to see already a huge amount of, of, uh, of information. So I would say that I start with with the um, and you know with the actual derivatives world, uh, which goes hand in hand with the um, with, with the fundamentals, uh, but it also goes very very closely with positioning and flows. And I think you know this is something uh, that that you learn as you as, as you trade. You know you understand you start to see not only. Uh, the two plus two equals four, uh, as fundamentals will tell you, but also understand that you know the market uh, can 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 believe that two plus two equals six, and 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 then eight, and then and then twenty five. Um, so, leaving with with positioning, understanding momentum, understanding why you know smart people think two plus two is twenty five, <laughs> and and trying to survive that and take take advantage of that. Is, is huge. So in that sense, you know, you, you, you can't ignore uh, technicals and and, 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 and positioning. Um, so I, I, my, my model is, is, is basically multi-factor. I, I, I look at, you know, the uh, obviously the macro top-down, number of uh, micro bottom-up issues, uh, cross-asset issues, um, you know, in terms of... Uh, what, what the derivatives are telling you in terms of probabilities and correlations and distributions and, and, and combine that also. And in that sense, I guess the, the way I've, I've been, my, my brain is, is wired. And this is the other big thing about, you know, how do you develop? What do you look for? What do you, what do you read? What do, how do you express your views? Um, I would say that, you know, I, I, I like to read about many things about many different markets um, and um, and I try to to learn uh, you know as much as I can from from, from uh, other uh, other areas. Um, but I think these these models that um, that we develop in, in in our minds, you know, as I said, get uh, you know evolve over time. And I think what, one of the things that I found is you know the other big dimension of of the game for me. Is is the emotional side, and and I think you know you, you can't ignore that. You need to find ways in which you know uh, Warren Warren Buffett might sleep very very well at night with certain type of risk, but probably would be uh, would be able to sleep with with different type in in a fraction of the size, <laughs> just because of how how we're wired. And I found that you know uh, from my own uh, biases from my own personality uh, for many many reasons I found that I, I have a bias to, to play the markets with, from a long volatility side I am very comfortable uh, that you know with, with my views over the medium term um, I have absolutely no idea what will happen in the next 24 hours um, you 
you know, I don't, I don't pretend I, 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 I will. So I, I, I'm adapting my game to be, you know, to, to express my views in, uh, so that I can survive them over the, the medium uh, longer term. And I have developed my views, uh, you know, where, where I have a long volatility bias. So I'm a big user of options. I like to control my risk uh, in, in the worst case scenario with uh, option premium. Um, some people are very uncomfortable um, just paying premium because they feel that, um, you know, they're, they're throwing money away. For me, it's the opposite. For me, just, you know, having a delta position and letting the market take you out in, in 24 hours uh, or, or having gap risk or the market exploding in your face just because you were wrong or early or whatever, um, that, that's what, what keeps my, me, me uh, awake. So I find that the emotional side is, is very powerful. It, it, it goes hand in hand with, with the views and how what I look for. And, and I think that uh, that option, long option bias, uh, you know, is also part of my search. So I'm, I'm always looking for ways to achieve the uh, cheapest optionality possible with the most upside possible. And, you know, the, uh, the holy grail is if, if you can do that with positive carry. And that those, you know, three ideas of, you know, how protecting your capital having a symmetric upside and positive carry is, is really a big, uh, big hurdle. Uh, but that's what I, what I try to do. And, and, and that, again, comes from, uh, from many things. But, you know, I, I do read lots of books. Um, uh, I like, you know, books that are in, in itself. And just to show you how obsessed I am with options, um, I do see books as options on themselves. You know, you spend your... $20 and many of them will expire worthless, but many books will be worth literally thousands of dollars, if, if not more. So I think that idea of exploring uh, all across, you know, different areas, different fields, but also with a purpose. So for example, you know, I, I, I was struggling a little bit at some point with, with the emotional side of the market uh, and I couldn't find, um, I couldn't find, you know, good books on, on, uh, on, on financial markets, on, on, on dealing with this. And I actually went and looked for, for poker. Uh, and, I, and I found, you know, an amazing book um, uh, on, on, on uh, poker, the poker mindset, which, uh, you know, I was reading through and I, line by line, I could tell, you know, where, where he said fold, I said stop loss, where he said, you know, X, Y. So in that sense, I think, you know, it's, it's very important to this process. I think it's more about finding yourself than finding people to tell you what to do. I think you need to find that, that own identity. And that means what am I good at, but also what is my own, uh, you know, mind. And what, you know, if it was a sports, you know, and you are, uh, midget, it, 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 you know, it probably not the greatest idea to be a basketball player or, or, or the other way around. You know, uh, there are certain things where it's not impossible to be to, to be a star and basketball being short. There are many cases, but certainly height is, is a factor. So I think emotionally, you know, you can you can succeed and train yourself to pretty much do uh, anything you want. But I think there are some strategies and some things that will be more natural than others. And I. And in that sense, I've, I've, you know, that search for me still continues. 
that is what has brought me to develop these this multi-dimensional factors, uh, including uh, you know the, the way not only the way I, I look at the markets and I look for the value and the asymmetry. It's it's all about the asymmetry. Um, but I think there's an important point here, if I may, on on asymmetry, because you know at the, at the end of the day um, there are potentially two two extremes, right? Is you know people who are extremely good at uh, what I would call an asymmetry of conviction, right? People that are really, really good at, uh, you know, identifying, being correct, okay? So they're, they're correct 80% of the time. Um, the problem, as we know, is what happens the other 20, right? And, and that other 20, you know, it's almost like the, the, the better you are at calling the markets, the bigger the fall because you're, you're, you're so not used to being wrong that when you are, uh, you, you probably crashed to death, right? Because you you had it in, in a much bigger size. You doubled up. You kept the position a lot longer. And so, in the, in that sense, I've learned to 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 survive. I've survived to learn. I live to tell. You know that conviction is 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 is, is very difficult to calibrate. I mean, you, you how how do you know? Um, but but the other side of the equation, which is the asymmetry of, of payout, that you can calibrate one hundred percent. Okay, you can actually buy um, a digital option in the market that, you know, will pay you between zero and one and you buy it for, for five cents. Um, you know, I, I, I'm long now stuff on China that is hundred to one, literally I'm risking one cent and I will get paid a hundred. Um, and that there's, there's, you know, then what happens is the market is, you know, you, you have those odds, and, and then you calibrate against your your expected outcome, right? Uh, but then you do it from from the basis of understanding your worst case scenario 100%. I mean, you, I knew if I buy this these options, I know what's the worst thing that could happen, no matter what, right? There's no uh, slippage, there's no gap risk, there's no liquidity, there's no provider. I know I bought something for one cent and it will pay me X or what, you know, zero or a hundred. Um, so in that sense. It's a long winding an- answer, but there's really a lot of things that come come to play. And uh, you know, I, I would say, in summary, that this is this is an ongoing search, and and you realize, you know, from from mistakes or failures, you know, that that uh, maybe your model was missing some pieces and how to calibrate all of those. So, staying very humble and and uh, very open minded and, and trying to to express the views in ways we. Uh, you know, with, with the right asymmetry of, of conviction and, and payout and positioning and others, I think it's is what works for me, and and I encourage other people to to find what works for them, not what works for me, <laughs> because we're all different. Yeah, I think that's I think that's just terrific advice. So many people want to, you know, be the next Stan Druckenmiller or Peter Lynch or whoever, but it's it's really far more important to figure out what you know, suits your own personality because you'll never be able to be as good of, you know, be as good at being Warren Buffett as he is. And, and actually you probably, you know, run into all kinds of problems in in trying to, to be him. Um, But I I think you're talking about this this long, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say that it becomes very obvious when you change subject, for example, you know, if you play tennis, okay, you, you can try to be Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal or Djokovic or whoever, but it's very obvious that they have certain things where there's personality or physique or others that 
that uh, you may not have, right? And I think to, to as much as you like the player, you know, you, you need to adjust to, to something that fits you better, right? Uh, and in the markets, I think it's the same. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's a great point. My son was a, a very highly competitive swimmer for a long period of time. And I remember, you know, reading about Michael Phelps and his torsos, like 50% longer than the average torso. His knees hyperextend. He's got size 16 feet. You know, his arms are too long. He's just got all these genetic gifts <laughs> that yeah. other swimmers don't have. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. But I, I think you talking about this, you know, uh, being kind of long voluntary – volatility versus short volatility leads into your next book and and also you mentioned something about the the oil crash too that i think is really relevant to the anti-bubbles which is the book i'm the new book that i'm talking about and you said there was a misconception that opec uh really controlled the oil price and you know george soros has said behind every bubble there's there's a kind of a grain of truth to this but it's but it's usually based on a misconception like this that's how prices get out of whack is people believe something that's not not true or at least not completely true and i think there's you know probably a similar misconception about um you know central banks today and the idea that they are all powerful in terms of propping up asset markets in order to create a wealth effect or, or build up the economy. Um, let, let's talk about uh, maybe that, that idea and the bubbles versus the anti-bubbles. What are, what are the anti-bubbles? Sure. Well, um, I, I actually, like you, I, uh, I, I draw on Soros uh, for, for, I guess, the, the simplest, uh, the definition of a bubble that I like the most is, is Soros. Yeah, he talks about prices that are artificially high based on beliefs that happen to be misconceptions. And uh, what, what I did, you know, in, is, is I generalized the framework and said, fair enough, uh, misconceptions distort reality, but they not only distort reality by creating artificially high valuations, they can also create artificially low valuations, right? Um, so in that sense, um, you know, the, the concept of anti-bubble, which, which I coined, uh, has two dimensions, two meanings. First is the idea of anti-bubbles being, it's almost like the ultimate value investment. You're buying something that, that is artificially cheap based on a, on a misconception. So it is a matter of when, not if, that that will go up. Um, the, the second powerful dimension of the anti-bubbles is, is the fact uh, that by construction, Bubbles and anti-bubbles are almost like distorted mirror images of each other. They're not symmetrical, but they are in opposing, moving opposing directions. But what is, is important is that the moment that misconception is understood and the bubble bursts is the actual exact same instant when the anti-bubble reflates because they're the exact same process, Right. Um, so in that sense, I called it anti-bubble, um, like an anti-virus or an anti-missile, um, because I, I was wanted to, to, to create this, this sense that it is a defense mechanism against the bubbles, right? And, and if you, uh, and there are many examples, and, and since I did this, you know, very, very interesting questions come up, right? It's almost like the idea that does every bubble have an, an it's anti-bubble, right? And, and, and. And in other forms, and uh, and that's that's uh, you know if, if you look at how the dynamics work, 
uh, I think you know, the 6th of February this year, we saw 2018, rather, um, we saw a very clear bubble anti-bubble process between the S&P and the VIX, right? You had effectively the, the, the S&P pricing uh, highly complacent valuations based on a, a perception of, of risk, which was, you know, uh, not real. Um, you had the VIX at whatever, nine, I don't know what the low was, but eight, nine, ten uh, levels that were obviously, in my view, artificially cheap. And it was actually the, the, the move in the anti-bubble that triggered the move in the bubble, and not, not necessarily the other way around. And, and, and I think in that sense, this helps a lot as well, because, you know, when you look at other asset classes, some people might argue, oh, um, you know, gold didn't do anything in that, in that process. It's what's wrong with gold or whatever. Well, you need to understand that some of these processes are, you know, sequential, interrelated. But, you know, at the end of the day, the, the move, the synchronous moves between the bubble and the anti-bubble, it, it, it will trigger and they do uh, domino and, and snowball effects. Uh, domino meaning the first piece triggers the next one and snowball meaning that the, the pieces are becoming bigger and bigger. But, but certainly this framework of bubble anti-bubble is, is hugely, uh, it, it has been very, very helpful for me to put into perspective many of these things, but also understanding the timing and the sequence and, and the relative value across, across the, uh, the, the process. So, you know, the bubbles in, well, I, I just want to actually pull a quote from the book because I think it's, the, the book came out uh, maybe a couple of years ago. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, almost. Okay. I finished writing, yeah, yeah, about that time, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so, you know, last year in the markets, I think we were starting to finally see what you were discussing in the books in terms of, um, you know, I, I think you write about uh, one of the... Um, Anti-bubbles um, is, you know, correlation. Every, everything has been correlated. And, and the quote I, I just want to share is, the, you, you write, the synchronous appreciation of all these markets creates a risk of synchronous depreciation uh, as and when the belief is proven to be a misconception, which the bubbles are built on, which creates a risk of false diversification as a portfolio composed of government bonds, high-grade credit, high-yield credit, emerging markets, and equities are just the exact same trade. And I think people just started to figure this out last year when essentially every asset class except for cash saw you know went down. I mean it was it was one of the worst years for investors in history because you saw so many different asset classes go down together. Um, is this kind of the um, the the you know the the uh, anti bubble of correlation kind of coming back? Do you, do you feel that process is kind of unwinding now? Yes, it is. Um, but I think the, the most important anti-bubble, uh, before we get into, into correlation, to me, the, the, the most important one and, and, and the trap is, is volatility. Um, you know, I, I believe volatility is, uh, has been, uh, remember when I wrote this, uh, it, was, it was kind of science fiction, right? The idea that, uh, for some people that uh, there was this perception that you know, central banks were in full control and, and that you know, volatility will stay low forever um, and, and these two misconceptions the central bank put but also the you know the whatever it takes from from the uh, the governments the, the, the central banks and the, and the, and the governments uh, and the other um, big belief which is what I call the complacent desperate search for yield 
uh, which is the whatever it takes from the from the investors, right? These two processes together, these misconceptions um, have created this this series of parallel synchronous bubbles. Is in what I would you know summarize with another quote of the book, which is you know how we've moved from from risk free interest to interest free risk. You know this idea of having uh, you know portfolios and investors being literally bullied. We've been financially bullied to take more risk in every single dimension we can think of. Um, so it's important to understand how those moves up, how that move up happened in parallel to, to understand why, you know, by construction it, it goes down uh, together. It's not, it's not just something that happens to happen. It's, it happens by construction. And, and those, those understanding those, those bubbles, everything starts, in my view, with government bonds and duration. You know, you have cash at, at, at zero or negative, you have central banks buying uh, literally almost infinite amount of government bonds. You know, you have this process that, ex- that ex- extends duration and forces benchmark investors and others to go longer and longer for lower. And faced with that crude reality and this perception that rates will stay down forever, there'll never be inflation, and oh my God, what do I do? Uh, it's almost like people were bullied and, and dragged into, into taking more risk. And that more risk has meant, obviously, you know, credit. So if your um, treasuries were, or, or gov- European governments were, were very low, then Apple or, or others look great. And that goes obviously into, not only into investment grade, but mess and, and, and high yield and, and, and emerging markets. So you have this big carry trade. Um, and that goes obviously into equities with put called parity between bonds and equities. It goes into liquidity, how, you know, I think, uh, Every every crisis um, has some big long term crisis, and, and I think Ray Dalio puts it nicely in his in his new book. Uh, has an element of um, you know shallow banking, right? Uh, that, that technology that that lends a lot of money to the wrong people, the wrong size, <laughs> the wrong price, blah blah blah. My what I call the acronyms, and I think you know along, amongst many others. In this case, we have uh, private equity, private credit being being. That shadow banking, uh, which is basically built on this belief, this misconception that you know who needs liquidity. There's plenty of liquidity, and uh, you know I, I'm happy to to capture that premium because the public markets were too rich. And so when when you go do, do that, and on top of that, you, um, you you basically monetize volatility through structured products and and all sorts of uh, direct and indirect ways in which volatility is being sold and monetized. You end up with with this desperate search for yield and this complacency with with the central bank put driving all these parallel bubbles. Now, the the, the phase one is volatility starts to normalize, and this normalizes naturally as a result of, of you know the uh, long overdue uh, normalization of monetary policy in the U.S., stronger dollar, higher rates, and 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 that. Triggers, you know, that phase one, as I call it, is, is the move in the, the VIX in February. And what we've seen since, it's a, a gradual process of both implied and realized volatility going up, as I said earlier, through domino and, and snowball effects. And, and that move up in volatility, it's critical because I compare this to, you know, driving a car at 200 miles an hour when the speedometer says 80. If you have an accident and you crash, what do you feel? 
And the answer is you feel the real speed you were you were uh, running, right? In this case, 200, regardless of what the, the speedometer uh, was saying. And in, in some sense, I would say that the, the you know, volatility is the speedometer of the market. You know, people have been, uh, the, the perception of low volatility of control meant that there was a perception that there was not a lot of risk and therefore people were willing to take uh, a lot more risk, you know, push the, the, the down on the pedal uh, through leverage and, and, uh, and, and speculative positions and, and size in ways that when the accident happens, uh, you know, you, you may not survive. So what we've seen, at, you know, since that moment has been a gradual, you know, move up in volatility, which I said in my newsletter, I said, forget about the VIX at, you know, at 9 or 10, uh, will normalize eventually between 15 and 20, but we're going we're gonna to be in the process of higher volatility and spikes uh, just as pure averages, right? Um, I think that is what it does is, you know, as volatility goes up, it increases risk metrics such as VAR, value at risk. And all professional investors uh, have actually uh, been forced uh, by, by the market uh, to, to, to trade smaller. Um, and that move up go, brings me to, to the second anti-bubble, which you were referring to, which is correlation. Now, the problem is that you know, this perception of diversification, this perception of low risk through low volatility, and this perception that you were diversified because on a day-to-day basis, maybe you're Amazon and oil and, and you know, whatever, and, and, and the, the Argentina bond were, were uncorrelated, that is, is noise. You know, when things go wrong and, you know, correlations go to plus one or minus one, and that's when, unfortunately, as volatility goes up, and risk reduction starts, uh, this forced liquidation starts to create and feed on itself through uh, higher correlations. And the problem is that the combination of high volatility and high correlation means that your VAR explodes. Okay? In that sense, uh, what it does is it creates, you know, it, it feeds on itself. So all, all the wealth effect that you discussed earlier, all these positive virtuous cycles on the way up, become obviously vicious cycles that bring us into the next chapter around the corner, uh, which is liquidity and, and reflexivity, uh, which I think are, uh, are going to be dominant in 2019. Well, let's, let's, you know, I, I think, so you mentioned volatility and correlation as being anti-bubbles, but uh, uh, let's, let's talk about gold because you also discuss gold as being uh, an anti-bubble. Um, I, I think one of the things that you write about, which is kind of interesting, um, in terms of, because people ask me, why should I own gold? And, and I, to me, the fact that most people think or have thought the last couple of years that there's really no reason to own gold makes me more kind of curious about it. Um, you, you write in the book, uh, that the United States created more money in the eight years of the Obama administration, uh, than all its previous history as a sovereign nation. And as a student of the school of no free lunch economics, as you call it, uh, you worry about the current path and try to understand how and when the consequences of these excesses will manifest themselves. Um, and, and, and to me, I, that, that makes me think about gold. So uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts there? And, and you know, the massive money printing, essentially, that we've seen around the world and how it relates to gold being in an anti-bubble. Well, I think it's, it's critical. I think what, what we're seeing is 
we look at the, uh, the patterns, you know, what we've seen over the last few decades is uh, we, we haven't really in some way solved problems. We've transformed them through the two simple miracles of printing your way out of a problem and, and, and borrowing your way out of a problem. Um, in that sense, um, you can actually, it's very obvious that, you know, for if we look at Venezuela or uh, Argentina or Zimbabwe or, or Turkey, um, you know, it's quite clear that if you try to, if you, if you abuse uh, monetary and fiscal, if you try to, to print and borrow your way out of a problem, the degree of freedom in the system is the currency. So all those all those countries that that basically you know, believed uh, wrongly that they could uh, print and borrow fell into that trap that that led them to more printing and more and, and more borrowing and eventually, unfortunately, what goes is is, is the currency and it creates uh, enormous uh, problems. Now that has been happening on a, on a, on a global scale across. Um, every single country um, in, in the world. And, and I think some are more, uh, have abused more, some have abused less, but we've seen this, this relentless process that has been pushing us into what I call uh, testing the limits of monetary policy and, and testing the limits of, of fiscal. Um, you know, I started the book with, with negative interest rates, which to me was just one step too far. That was really the Fukushima moment that I discussed in the energy book. It was my mind just, just was like, what is going on and, and how does this end? And, and I think that that process of, of monetary policy without limits, including uh, you know, not only printing money and QE, you know, left, left pocket lends the right pocket, the central bank lends the government, uh, you know, it, 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 which, which takes us into negative interest rates, is is one step too far. And I think, you know, unfortunately it hasn't really resolved problems. It has uh, transformed them and in my view, made them, made them bigger through the bubbles. Now, as you know, this, this time will tell, but you know, where we're living today, uh, you know, the, the fact that volatility has been artificially low correlations and all the hidden leverage in the system, what, what it, it will mean for zombies and companies that, have been kept artificially uh, alive, uh, you know, for years that should have should have been let go a long time ago. Sears and and, and thousands of other companies all over the world, um, you know, the, the impact that that, that has in, in reflexivity through you know economic data and economic activity, employment, and others. Um, it's a very very slippery slope that, in my view, will push central banks back into. So the only thing that they, they know what to do, which is which is printing more and, uh, and and borrowing more, and and I think that uh, that process uh, will basically exacerbate one of the major problems that we've we've had all along. That we're not talking much about it directly, but it's, it's currency wars. Uh, you know, I'm European, and you know, from our perspective, uh, one of the Constructive criticisms I, I would make of, of Ray Dalio and, and a lot of his his fantastic work is is this uh, very uh, U.S. centric or very domestic uh, view of, of of the world where you you know look at how well 
things worked out for us using QE and, and, and people don't realize that in that process, um, whilst the US was, was printing a lot and, and doing the right thing domestically, uh, the people who were quote unquote the, the good citizens such as such as Europe saw you know the euro dollar appreciating towards 150. And along, along that, we had obviously euro yuan, which with the yuan pegged to the dollar also uh, going to, to uh, huge levels. And what it meant is, surprise, surprise, four years later, uh, Europe had a major crisis. Um, Draghi it walks in and realizes very well that, you know, whilst many of these policies are sold as domestic, they have big implications in your neighbors. And he basically not only embraces all the uh, unconventional monetary policy, he pushes it even farther with, with negative interest rates. And, and he just wanted the euro dollar at one. That's it. It's like, guys, I want, <laughs> I want euro dollar at one. I want Europe to be competitive. I want to, I don't, I don't, I, they want, want to reverse this process. And I think that, that, um, that uh, led to big issues with, with China, who was suddenly in the wrong side of the, the routine for the wrong team. And they, we start to see problems in August 15, Jan 16, when China tries to, to, to change ship. And, and, and we saw what happened. And I think all these dynamics are, are still there and they will come back in a, in a, in a big way. Because if, if this crisis, if, if, if those problems weren't solved and they've actually been transformed and increased, and they materialize, we're, we're now left with very little or much less ammunition. Uh, in the case of the, the Federal Reserve still is earned a bit of room. Europe and Japan have virtually zero room. Uh, well, in fact, they, they have room, but it's room into further negative and helicopter money and other things that I do believe are coming. And, and, and as, you, as you see all this, there's a couple of major implications. One is you know, trade wars. I mean, at the end of the day, to me, uh, along many other good reasons, you know, for America first and, and Japan first and Spain first and whatever. Uh, but there's clearly, to me, a way where, you know, if, if China devalued their, their currency by 20% in, in one day, which I think it, it will happen. But uh, if and when uh, this happens or just this, this currency front, what, what the U.S. cannot... Uh, tolerate or anybody could is to say listen uh, you uh, the fact that you devalued your currency by 20% artificially with all this printing and whatever doesn't mean that I'm going to build my cars or do all my manufacturing there just because it's cheaper so you know I'm going to tariff you 20% so you devalue by 20 I tariff you by 20 so I'm going to neutralize the impact and so I see trade wars really as a mirror image of currency wars. I think they are a defense mechanism. And by construction, the unstoppable trend of more currency wars will lead to more, um, uh, more, more, more trade wars, even if uh, people like Europe initially is very reluctant, uh, just, just like it was to, to unconventional monetary policy initially, only to fold later. So I think we might see a repeat uh, where Europe naively, um, you know, suffers the consequences and will come back later. But whatever happens in this path, which I think is very difficult to, to avoid, leads us to this process of, you know, as Voltaire uh, would say, you know, paper money 
eventually converges to its intrinsic value, which is paper. And I do think that whilst, you know, real assets in general and, and beautiful house and, and, and beautiful place will, will do very well in that, in that environment, I think gold is very unique in the sense that it's, it's the monetary asset. And that's what makes a difference between gold and, and copper and oil or, or any other real asset or commodity. And I think gold is set to play uh, a meaningful role. Gold is simply artificially cheap, uh, in my view. Um, you know, and, and there are different models and ways in which you can you can uh, you can look at it. But you know, I uh, I try not to give a you know just in the in the oil case. I remember when oil was at one twenty, and I would tell people it could go to thirty thirty to to fifty. Uh, you lost all credibility. People thought you were a lunatic. <laughs> um, I think, you know, so a more moderate scenario of telling people, listen, I think it could fall to, to 70 was already, uh, you know, scaring people. Um, my, my moderate scenario goal is two to 3,000 in the next um, you know, two to three years. Uh, but the risk is, in my view, skewed to, to much higher. Um, so I, I do believe that gold will, will have a role to play. Uh, China, Russia, probably agree and and i think this is this is uh, an interesting chapter that, that is it's only just starting um but it will go hand in hand i think you need to be patient you know people who expect gold to do very well you know when the s&p goes down need to understand that gold as an anti-bubble okay what is the bubble and the bubble is paper currencies and you know you so owning gold uh, is something that I've you know written about the last couple of years too, and it's uh, I think it makes sense. You know, Dalio said everybody needs to have at least five percent of their portfolio in gold, but you don't just um, own gold um, outright or even you know um, just buy it to hold it. Um, tell tell me about the Smart Gold Fund and and what is really the goal behind that uh, that fund and the methodology behind it. Sure. Um, well, this, this is the natural evolution of, of many years managing uh, strategies, right? Um, and, and the strategy has uh, four building blocks. It has a, a core building block, which is a position in, in gold. Okay? This could be physical. It could be an ETF. It could be a future. Uh, I don't mind. I'm indifferent. Uh, but uh, what it is not is, is gold equities. Okay. I think there's a misconception here uh, in, in the market uh, where uh, lots of people see gold equities as uh, just a call option on gold. Uh, yes, it is, but it, 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 they, they need to understand as well that that call option has a, has a knockout uh, in the form of three main risks, which is taxation, expropriation, and nationalization. Okay. I've seen this movie already in oil when oil went, uh, you know, to, to twenty one forty, and uh, you know some of the companies were taxed ninety nine percent of the revenue, right? So, uh, let alone being a strategic asset being confiscated or or being outright nationalized, and, and you could see Repsol, YPF in Argentina not long ago. So, uh, whilst I think the miners are, you know, have their own merits and they could be great. Uh, and, and right now, I even own some. Uh, this is a gold story. It's not a gold mining story. And I, there's nothing I hate more than being right and losing money. And that's uh, just a word of caution. 
Um, the building block number two basically recognizes that the fact that you know uh, you, you can be early, um, you, you could be wrong, um, and and I think generally speaking, you know, this concept of false diversification we uh, we discussed earlier uh, has huge implications for uh, asset allocation because if you build a portfolio with long onlys, right, even even actively managed long onlys, right. Uh, you could see that the market, the S&P or gold or whatever, went down 70%. The manager lost you 50. They, they walk in the room and they, they, they think they're heroes. And the reality is, dude, you lost me 50%. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The market is down 70. And unfortunately, uh, what tends to happen is that many of these mandates lose 50 at the same time. Right. So this is a game, you know, Warren Buffett. Uh, talks about two rules of investing, right? Rule number one, never lose money. Rule number two, never forget rule number one. Well, I am more uh, puppist than the, than the Pope, as we say in Spanish, right? Uh, I, I, I think that what, what he means is, you know, first of all, protect your capital. And second, compound on capital preservation. But those are the two rules of, 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 of Buffett as I, as I interpret it. And then, so never lose money is protect your capital. And rule number two is compound on, on your protected capital. So in that sense, I find it a bit ironic and, and cynical, to be honest, that uh, value can lose 70% uh, when the objective was never to lose money, right? Uh, as it was the case in 2008. Um, so in that sense, if the objective is never lose money, uh, you need to be uh, humble. And, and, and what I do uh, is you know, first of all, I have some relative value between the pieces. So the strategy is able to rotate between the core long and gold, which is you know hundred dollars, hundred units. I can rotate subject to risk limits across other precious metals and and miners, and I do that with strict risk limits so that it stays mainly being a, a gold play. But that is mean reverting alpha, which works uh, very well over the long run, and that means today I'm. Um, 70% in gold, 30% in silver, uh, which is my max long position. So I, I do believe silver is, is going to do quite well uh, on a relative basis, an absolute basis. But that, the, the key thing becomes those, so building block number one is my core long, building block number two is my relative value. Building block number three, basically, uh, some people in building block number four, both of them are insurance. Building block number three is insurance to protect my capital. Okay, recognizes the fact that I might be early, I might be wrong. So when I tell people, hey, I think gold is going to go to 3000 but I'm buying insurance in, in, in case gold goes down, some people scratch their head because they think I'm, I'm wasting money, I'm throwing money away. And the reality is, is I'm not. I, I, I see the insurance as you know, a way to, especially when it's artificially cheap, as it is the case. I retain my, my blue sky or my upside. But if I'm, if I'm early or I'm wrong, those puts uh, will, will protect me. And what I do is I, I actually like to monetize those puts and, and use the money that I get from insurance to basically buy more gold. It, it is a very powerful accumulation process. Uh, there's lots of lots of pluses from, from this uh, insurance overlay. And uh, overall, it's been, uh, it's been adding value, reducing volatility, and, and increasing risk-adjusted returns. Um, this is something that we manage dynamically. Uh, you know, and I use the example when you climb a mountain, um, 
you know, what's, what's your objective? Uh, if you speak to a, a Swiss guy who uh, they, they know one, one or two things about climbing, they always, they tell me my objective is, is making it back down uh, the mountain. <laughs> it's not going to the top. It's not going to the top first. They know that it's all about getting, getting back down alive. I think here's the same, you know, when the market is rallying, I am very happy to use money to, 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 for, to protect my, my capital, but also protect my gains. And, and when, you know, you fall as, as you might, uh, that, that rope is going gonna, is gonna to protect you and we use it to, to effectively accumulate the position. Um, the fourth thing that, that I do is I, I take advantage not only of the volatility, but also the correlation. This is insurance that is basically show me the money. And it, it is, I'm looking for gross mispricing uh, in, in volatility and correlation, as I think it is the case today. Um, but, you know, I, I have positions where I basically uh, ask the market, uh, you know, I think, or I tell the market, I think, um, you know, if there's a crisis, the, the dollar will do well, or, uh, but I think gold will do better than the dollar. And uh, believe it or not, uh, the market thinks that's quite impossible. Uh, mathematically, uh, the fact that gold will do very well, um, you know, and, and, and the dollar will also do well is, is not something that they, it's, it, the models would predict because it's, uh, it's using the wrong correlations and, and the wrong stuff in my view. So I, I look to buy insurance that is very cheap, uh, you know, over the medium long term that allows me to monetize these things. So when you put together the four pieces, the, the core, the RV, the, the insurance, the downward insurance to protect my capital and the upward insurance to show me the money and, and make and, and have uh, leverage exposure is, is very powerful. And, and that uh, altogether is, is what we call smart gold. And, and that gave uh, way to, to a sister strategy called smart treasuries, which does virtually the same thing for, for U.S. treasuries. And um, so we have a core long, we have relative value, we have insurance, and we have the, the tail uh, upside. And, and those two strategies are combined into a strategy called Igneo. Um, this is a daily liquidity uh, usage uh, and, and, and is now recently being onboarded in, uh, through Pershing in the U.S. It's a mutual fund, daily liquidity. And, and this is a strategy that, in my view, is very well positioned to... to uh, protect the portfolios by construction. Uh, it's up 9.9% uh, in 2018 with very strong October and Decembers. And, uh, you know, going back to, to, to the comment on, uh, on, on false diversification, um, you know, I find that uh, if, if, if this was a soccer team, uh, you know, I mean, I'm Spanish, so sorry, I use lots of soccer analogies, <laughs> but, but I, I find that, um, most investor portfolios tend to have just uh, 11 strikers. Um, you know, people build the portfolios, you know, thinking I want to make money. I want my equities, my credit, my high yield, my merchant markets, my private, whatever. Everybody's just trying to score goals. And, and that's not how you win. Uh, you may win a few matches. You may certainly not win the championship. And, 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 and so in Spain, the only World Cup we ever won in soccer the last four matches were 1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0 and we saved the penalty in quarterfinals. So to be honest, to me, this is a game, you know, where the goalkeeper and the defenders are hugely important and, and cash 
it's just like having a still keeper. You know, if you throw the ball and it hits him, fine. But you need, you know, what Igneo is trying to do is trying to be that goalkeeper that will, you know, not only protect the capital, but also make money when, when, when the portfolio needs it. And I think uh, that's that's really you know what we're set out to do. I, I think there's a, a saying in the industry that goes like you're as good as your last trade. I, I disagree. I think you're as good as your last crisis, and and that's what we've set up to do. I mean, we, we we're trying to some of the dynamics that I explained earlier, the the insurance piece. Um, if if you structure it the right way. Uh, you know, is actually positive carry. So I'm, I'm doing things that, you know, it, it is obviously taking a contrarian view about, about the market, but it's giving us, uh, you know, insurance that uh, you know, will, will cost you very little or even make money while you wait. And I think these are these are things that are, you know, when I explain it in, in detail, I, I always say the same thing. It's like an iPhone, is it easy? Is it simple or complex? And to be honest, it's, it's both, okay? The, uh, my three-year-old uh, nephew can, can use the iPhone and the iPad uh, perfectly well. Um, you know, uh, so it's a very simple uh, instrument. It's a very simple strategy. This is what it's meant to do, and this is by construction how it will behave. Now, if you try to open the iPhone and do it yourself, you, there's a lot of technology there. And that's, in a way, what, what we try to do. We, we are... The, the technology experts that basically build something that is very user-friendly that a, a two, three-year-old uh, investor would, would understand, you know, what it's meant to do under different scenarios. Uh, however, uh, our engineering uh, basically uh, looks for these ways in which we do it the most efficient way. And I think, uh, you know, that the recent performance uh, can, can show what, 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 can, what can happen and, and I think it's going to be an interesting 2019. I, I expect, uh, you know, it's going to be uh, volatile and, and tricky, but uh, I am concerned that the risks are, are skewed to, uh, to the downside. I think uh, gold could be a big winner this year. But I think the key is going to be a, a, around credit and, and, and particularly high yield and the zombies, which uh, it's, it's a problem with uh, unprecedented uh, size and, and, and risk uh, this is way bigger than uh, we've, we've ever encountered and, and that means that the, the monetary and fiscal response will be potentially even uh, equally equally large and that unfortunately opens many other uh, considerations and geopolitical and, 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 and uh, inequality and, and social which are beyond our discussion but uh, as, I, as I say and I finish the book uh, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, to be honest, I, I think uh, I feel like a doctor uh, telling a friend, uh, "Dude, I think you know you have a big problem. Uh, these are your your likely symptoms." And, and, uh, and I really hope I'm wrong. But it, it's it's we've built something for a long period of time, and I think it'd be naive to think that it's it's uh, it's, it's just all over. Uh, it's you know, risks are skewed, but. We'll see. It could take a while. It's going to be volatile. It's going to be tricky. But I, I, I am concerned that uh, it's it could be uh, it could unfold into something bigger than most people expect. 
Yeah, and and I, I would encourage people to to read through the book. It's there's so much in there that we couldn't even you know touch on the surface of. Um, and I got to tell you, I just I love your analogies too. And and I'm gonna I, the quote that you're not as good as your last trade, you're as good as your last crisis is one that's gonna just stick with me. I'm gonna use that over and over again. But uh, yeah, how can people keep up with you and your ideas and your thinking, Diego? Well, I'm uh, reach out to to me. Uh, some of you uh, might might be in Twitter, uh, Parilla Diego, um, with a double R and a double L. Um, I uh, if, if if you're qualified and you know investors, then uh, you, know, you could you could uh, subscribe to to the uh, to the newsletter. Um, and uh, yeah, we you know, the, the strategies are. I'm working with the regulators to to make them uh, available for for smaller sizes. Uh, unfortunately, as of today, the, the minimum denomination is is about one hundred twenty five thousand dollars, which which means that uh, a lot of people are are left out um, because they, they probably don't want to put all everything in, in there. But but certainly, um, you know, very as you can see, I'm, I'm very open minded to to very transparent in in, in the way I'm thinking welcome the, the criticism and I think you know uh, in that sense I'm not super active uh, uh, on the media and stuff but I I do welcome referrals and, and, and they having smart uh, dialogue and, and uh, you know, debate so in that sense uh, probably the easiest to reach out through um, through Twitter and, and then we can establish dialogue uh, I'm based in Madrid but I, I do travel extensively um, you know Throughout different parts of the world, um, and I'll happen to be uh, in Miami for for the hedge fund conference at the end of the month. Uh, so some professional investors might, might listen to this might might be there, but otherwise, you know, feel free to reach out, and we'll I'm sure we'll find the, the most efficient way to to stay in touch and and, and keep you posted with uh, with the thinking. Terrific, I, Diego. I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to do this. Um, the insights are just so so valuable. I know uh, everyone's going to just be very uh, appreciative of of uh, you sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, my my pleasure, and I must say, you know, I really enjoy uh, your 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 own contributions. So uh, I, next time I should interview you, <laughs> but I, but uh, th- thank you as well, and and all the listeners. Uh, I hope you find it helpful, and I look forward to. You know, staying out of trouble and, and hopefully taking advantage of all the all the opportunities ahead of us. Absolutely, and and you know, speaking of travel, I'm going to have to make it out there to to <laughs> Spain, and we'll do this in person next time. There are there are worse places than Madrid, trust me. <laughs> you're all you're all welcome to come. <laughs> Terrific, thanks a lot. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, everyone. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.